Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. I'm Anthony Skinner, producer of the show, and we are celebrating the completion of season one and nearly two million downloads with a best of series for the next several weeks. It's the best of the best of typology. That's some of our favorites, your favorites, those that have had the most downloads. Today, we're revisiting one of the most downloaded episodes of all time, which is Ian's interview with Sarah the Barge. Sarah is a speaker, blogger, journalist, and author of The Invisible Girls. She has a fascinating story, and her work has been featured on National Geographic, USA Today, MSNBC.com, Relevant Magazine, Christianity Today, Huffington Post, Red Letter Christian, and more. Sarah is an Enneagram 6, and she needs a cape because she is a superhero. You're going to love this episode. Also, we'd like to remind you about our Patreon campaign. If you aren't familiar with it, it's a great way for you to contribute to Typology on a monthly basis. For as little as a dollar a month, you can partner with us and help us cover the cost that it takes to pull off each episode of Typology. All you have to do is go to www.patreon.com forward slash typology. That's www.patreon.com forward slash T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y and select the level at which you'd like to support the show. As a thank you for your support, you're going to get a bunch of great bonus content as well. So even a dollar a month, folks, it's a huge, huge help. So thank you very much. We have listeners all over the world and we're thankful for you all. It is a national holiday here in the United States, and so for all of you that are in the United States, we hope you're enjoying your Independence Day holidays. Well, that's it for me, Anthony Skinner. Let's get on with the interview. Here is the host of our show, Ian Cron. Welcome back, Typology Friends, fans, family, <laughs> I'm here. Hey, Ian. I'm back in the studio with <laughs> Anthony Skinner, producer, engineer, handsome man. <laughs> handsome, handsome man. Back at you. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. <clears throat> I, uh, I have a question. I want, to, I want to start with a question today. Okay. Tell me about an environment or place where you have experienced or typically experienced anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. So fear being something, you know, fear is all about like, you got to clear present danger, right? Right, 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 sure. right there, right? Anxiety mm-hmm. tends to be a little bit more free floating, untethered yeah. to any actual thing going on. Mm-hmm. What, what, where, where does that happen for you typically? I, I would say um, for like maybe 10 years, a real, acute anxiety around flying really because mm-hmm. you fly all the time now yes so I'm, you you have moved on from your anxiety i have i have moved on but an intense level of anxiety i, I, I need a story yes I, was there a story that triggered it or did it a story well, definitely what? i was fine until this event happened no. <laughs> <laughs> okay this is this is going to be worth yeah. the price so of it's admission sort of a, it's a combination of two events one right. i was flying from florida Actually, both flights are from Florida, interestingly enough, to Nashville. We were flying over Chattanooga, 
and we hit just some crazy weather and it was like a roller coaster and people were screaming and throwing up no yeah awful it was so bad and i remember when we were exiting the plane like the the captain didn't even open the door come out i mean it was like really bad it was it was terrifying really yes okay so that that sort of set the stage for this next one the next one (laughs) on a flight from florida coming here to nashville we get all we're about to we're getting close to landing maybe 30 minutes out and i have got to go to the bathroom so i get up go to the restroom and we hit turbulent weather and the the captain says everyone to your seats now and i'm hanging on to the rail and i have an out-of-body pain-filled experience it's so painful that it's completely out of body really and i don't know what's going on i don't know in my mind i'm thinking what's what is happening to me i don't know what's going on i come back to my seat i sit down i really don't know what's going on i I exit the plane and my my now wife my then fiance is there waiting for me and she's like what happened to you and i'm like what are you talking about she's like you're gray I get in the car, get home, find out I'm passing a kidney stone. Oh my gosh. I am passing a kidney stone. And I went to the doctor the next day and he was like, how are you even walking around? Like he, he freaked out. So it hits you on the airplane, on like the airplane. out of the blue. Yes. In turbulence. Yes. Now here's the funny part. Boy, there's a funny part. <laughs> <laughs> a week later, I asked Mary Keith to marry me. Actually, so we weren't engaged yet. Right. A week later, I asked her to marry me. And she said I had the same look on my face as when I was coming off that plane. <laughs> so our joke is I was passing my bachelorhood. <laughs> I got down on my knee. I got down on one knee and I couldn't, I could, no words came out and I turned gray. Oh. And she said, yes, thank you, God. I have some, I have some, I have some weird airplane stories. Okay. All right. So here's a funny one. Yes. All right. So I'm flying from JFK, New York to London. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I'm a little bit, I'm an anxious flyer. I'm not a super anxious flyer, mm-hmm. but I'm more, I'm vigilant and I'm a little fidgety. Okay. You know what I mean? Like right, a little, right. Yep. So whenever I fly overseas, you know, I got a seven, six, seven, eight hour flight. I I used to take, you know, an Ambien or I would right. take a something. So I got on the plane and I took a, I took a drug that they don't even make anymore. <laughs> so this, this, this particular drug was called Halcyon back okay. in the day. Okay. And it, it makes Ambien look like, you know, Advil PM. I mean, this, I mean, it is like this, this was like, excuse me, I'm chemically going to hit myself in the head with a sledgehammer. Okay, here we go. So I took this Halcyon because I just wanted to sleep. And, right. and, and if I did, I, I just like put a little sign on my, on my chest saying, don't need dinner. And you wake up in London. That's how serious these wow. things are. Wow. So I took it. The plane, you know, where the plane's already taxiing. We're out on the tarmac. We're on the thing getting ready to take off. And then the, the engines roar up and then they start winding down. No way. And the plane goes back to the gate. No Away. And the pilot says, we've got a light on the on the, the dash here. We can't take off. And so everyone's got to leave the plane. Hold on a second. Dude, can I tell you, like, on, basically on all fours, I left the plane. <laughs> like in an army crawl. Like, I was just no like, way. yeah, now that was not an anxiety producing event. I will granted, but. But it gave me pause. I did learn that make sure you make make sure you are wheels You're up in the air, wheels up right. before you take the right. halcyon. Right. Okay, just yeah. people, if you don't know it, wheels up before you take anything. That's good advice. Hey, so today um, 
We have someone on the show who I really love, Sarah the Barge. Um, Sarah mm. is uh, an author. She is an adventurer in many, many ways. Uh, Sarah is um, uh, the author of the memoir-esque book, uh, uh, Invisible Girls, mm. story of her struggle with breast cancer, meeting a, a Somali family, becoming deeply involved in their lives. She's got a new book out called Well, Healing Our Beautiful Broken World from a Hospital in West Africa. Now, Sarah is a six on the Enneagram, so she is very familiar mm. with, uh, with anxiety and, I, and, and with fear and how to deal with it uh, as a personality type and with worst-case scenario thinking and all that stuff. I'm just telling you, this interview is a treat because she is so, as a graduate of Yale and Columbia, uh, uh, she is so articulate hmm. and she has really done Enneagram work. She has really learned to do stuff with her anxiety. And um, I mean, she, she has, well, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but she, she says a couple of things on, on, in this interview that I, I couldn't write fast enough that wow. I wa I wanted to get down on paper to use when I'm teaching. So I don't know. I'm excited. So if That's you have great. any more anxiety, Anthony, about anything, today's the day, I'm Sarah, the to. barge, Enneagram six author, uh, remarkable, remarkable person, philanthropist heart. Anyway, Fantastic. ladies and gentlemen, no further ado, my friend, the author, the Enneagram Six, Sarah the Barge. <laughs> my friend, Sarah the Barge, Enneagram Six, the loyalist, sometimes called the devil's advocate. Welcome to Typology. Thanks so much for having me. Now, we spoke last, I think, about maybe a year ago, um, and I know that your life is so, always so full, always lots of adventures uh, going on. For those of you who have never read The uh, the Invisible Girls. Invisible Girls, yes. It's yeah. about five Somali sisters that I met on a train in Portland. What is it about, so I just want to know something about the sixes here, because I have another friend of ours, Katie, she's a counterphobic six, and... Um, like adventures and strange things happen to Katie all the time. Like, like she, she go to the grocery store and come back, go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, the strangest thing happened to me. What is it about sixes? Like, you know, you end up in places like, you know, meeting like Somalis on a train and then they change your life and then you go to Somalia and then you, you know, what is it about sixes that this happens? I'm not sure, except one of, one of the best things that I read about sixes is that because you have so much anxiety and fear about little things all the time that when it comes to big things, sixes are often the most brave and the most willing to jump in because you spend all day every day overcoming fear. And so when it comes time to put that that muscle into action that does something good, you're ready. You know, that is so funny you should say that because I was doing a uh, retreat uh, workshop Enneagram workshop this past weekend and I said to the sixes I said or to the group I said now listen you, you just, I want you to know this about sixes I said if by chance you should fall into a wood chipper and your leg is taken off call a six right away they have already in their minds planned for uh, this I mean literally planned for the wood chipper thing and they know they're going to take their belt it's true, right? Oh my gosh, it's true. I can't go anywhere without knowing where the emergency exits are. And when I'm on an airplane, um, when I when I was flying back and forth to college from the East Coast to LA where I was going to school, I would not 
drink anything that had ice in it. And I would not eat anything on the six-hour flight because I just did the mass. Like, if you choke, if your airway gets occluded and people can't get out, they can't land the plane in time. So I was really hungry and thirsty, but at least I wasn't going to choke to death. Oh, my gosh. My So I was in New York City leading another workshop. I was down in Tribeca. And one of the workshop uh, attendees, when I was talking about sixes, raised her hand and she said, okay, you're not going to believe this, but on the way over here, I was walking down the street and imagining what I would do if a terrorist in a car came up on the sidewalk, where would I run? Like, would I go into a store? Would I run into the street to get out of the way? I mean, is that... Like I tell people, this is real, right? Is this real? It happens all the time. And then I work in medicine and specifically in ER medicine. And so I see worst case scenarios come in all the time. And so for me, it's not even always just the theoretical risk. risk. It's an actual one. I actually see the things that can go wrong and do go wrong. So I'm, I'm usually quite prepared with at least Six backup plans. That okay. So from now on, can I? You need to travel with me. I was gonna say, uh, travel with you. I have everything. I have everything that you could possibly need. I've never asked. I've never asked a six this, but can you just tell me like some six things that you always pack in a bag or in your bag that you bring on a plane? That's a great question. I always have hand sanitizer. I always have dental floss and nail clippers and. Advil and Benadryl in case somebody has an allergic reaction. <laughs> How about an EpiPen? Do you have an EpiPen even though you don't need one? I do one? not. I do not. I don't know if you can actually take them on your bag on the plane, but I do know that on board they actually have a medical kit and they have a defibrillator and they have IVs and they even have um, IV medication. And so I've, I've actually asked the airline if I could look inside the kit because I want to know what, what options I have in case somebody codes on the plane. <laughs> in case, I love that. She goes, I love what you just said. In case someone codes on the plane, like goes to a cardiac arrest, right? Well, it happens. It does. I've actually probably five or six times in all the flying that I've done, I've, you know, I've heard the page, if there's a doctor on the plane, please ring your call bell. And so I've actually cared for people up in the who are quite ill so again it's not it's not always theoretical the risk is real okay so but this is so six like the only thing i worry on an airplane about before the only thing i worry about is that someone is going to try and initiate a conversation with me before i get my noise canceling headphones on that's like the only thing i worry about you know it's like <laughs> it must be nice I mean, no, but seriously, the like, personalities are, are so incredibly different. The things, the things we pay attention to uh, when we are in different situations is, I mean, by the way, did you also know on airplanes that have something called a corpse closet? Oh, no. They do. Uh, it's either called a cadaver closet or, and it may only be on big planes like long haul flights, but literally if someone goes, you know, someone passes on the plane, they have a closet and a body bag into which they can place. Because obviously, you know, stepping over somebody who's dead to get to the men's room or to the the, the bathroom is not a, not a win. I, I did not know that. I thought they always just moved him to first class. <laughs> you, know, you know they kind of deserve it the last run right <laughs> we 
No, that is funny. They put the corpse in a really nice seat. They put it down to flat and put it. They put a champagne in their hands. It's the least and they, they could do, right? It's the least. That's right. It's the least they could do. Yeah. Did oh, you know? Boy. By the way, in first class, if the plane crashes, you're thirty percent more likely to die if you're sitting in first class. Now wait a minute. You actually know that to be true. I do know that to be true. Yet people who sit in the front of the plane are thirty percent more likely to die in a crash. Which is weird because if the airlines know that, why isn't first class in the back of the plane? Like if you're going to pay 500 extra dollars, you might as well have a 60% increased chance of survival, right? Totally. Oh, yeah. But I just think it's fascinating that you know that you must be an Enneagram 6 getting ready for worst case. You're like, you're like I'm not going I'm not going to go upgrade this first class. Please don't upgrade me. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> That is incredibly funny, man. That is incredible. Well, I mean, you've got a brand new book out. You've done so much in the past year. Uh, you've had so many adventures, so many reasons to fly. Um, let let our typology tribe know a little bit about the kind of stuff you've been doing. What's going on? Yes. I, well, I've always wanted to practice medicine in the developing world, but I got breast cancer when I was 27 years old. And that took me on a different course. And so I ended up going to Portland, Oregon to recover from my cancer treatments. And that's when I met the family of Somali refugees on the train one afternoon, developed a relationship with them, fell in love with these little girls, and wrote a book about how love brings us back to life. And then, um, so I wrote the book called The Invisible Girls. All of the profits from the book go into a college fund for those girls. And so that's been really cool. That that came out a few years ago. And then finally, um, in 2015, I had the opportunity to go to Africa and to take care of people there. I went to Togo, which is a little country in West Africa. Um, the, the United Nations ranked it the least happy country in the world. Okay, hold on a second. How do you figure that out? How do you figure out that a place is the... Because I've heard, for example, like Bhutan is rated the most... Is the happiest country in the world. I mean, at one time. Uh, they, they, they actually they measure like gross national happiness or something. What happens in Togo? They do. So they went to 170 countries and they had, I think, an eight-question survey. So part of it is statistics. Part of it is the infant mortality, the life expectancy, the, life expectancy, the GDP... In Togo, the GDP is about a thousand U.S. dollars a year. In the U.S., for comparison, ours is fifty-three thousand, and so there's incredible poverty there. There's conflict, so not only between the government and the people, but there are twenty-eight tribal groups, and so there's a lot of conflict amongst them. And then they ask the people how satisfied they are with their life, if they feel like they have options for education and for occupation, if they feel like um, they have an adequate they have adequate resources to resolve conflicts. And so part part of its stats, part of its questions about the people's experience. But Togo ended up dead last out of 170 countries. Mm. And so I went there to practice medicine and saw more people die in one week at this hospital than I'd seen die in 10 years of practicing medicine in the U.S. before that. And I didn't go there planning to write about it, but I am a writer. I mean, after I got my degree in medicine, I went to journalism school. And so I I am a writer. And so I just thought somebody has to write about this. Somebody has to tell these stories because there are people suffering in ways that we don't know. Like I I didn't know anybody that was writing about, about 
how bad these conditions were. I mean, people are dying of AIDS and malaria and tuberculosis. We had a little five-month-old baby girl die of tetanus because her mom pierced her ears with a dirty needle and babies mm. don't get pediatric immunizations. It is horrific watching a baby seize the death of tetanus. Yeah, that that's pretty intense. Yeah, so I started writing um, this just on my blog and it, it it became the most liked, commented on, shared piece of writing I'd ever done. And so two days after I got back, my editor flew to Chicago to meet me and she had printed out all of my blog posts and she slid it across the table and she said, this is your next book. Mm. That's how my, my book, Well, came to be. So it's the stories of the people and the, uh, at this hospital in West Africa. It's a story of how much love costs us. I got malaria. I actually almost died of malaria while I was there. And then it's also an invitation for everybody, no matter where you are, no matter what you're good at, no matter if you have a passport or not, how each of us, wherever we are, can pour love into the cracks of this broken world and begin to make the world well. Mm. I love that. Yeah, the book, Well, Healing Our Beautiful Broken World from a Hospital in West Africa is the name of the book. It came out in November of uh, 2017. I know you are on the book tour now because you just spent the last month. It came out and then you just went away for a month, right? As soon as the book launched, I got on a plane and flew to South Sudan and I taught medicine and practiced medicine there for five weeks. Wow. Okay. so this is uh, for those of you who are listening, uh, sixes. Um, are people who have a profound need for safety, uh, a feeling of safety and survival, uh, or, um, security, I should say, and, uh, uh, to feel supported. And, um, they are worst case scenario planners and, uh, they, their deadly sin or their passion is fear, which when you just have heard everything that, that says, it doesn't make any sense that you're a six, right? Because you have just said stuff that I wouldn't, and I've been to some crazy places. You're, you're, you're describing stuff that would create so much anxiety for people who aren't even sixes. Like what, what drew you to these places that are, a lot of people wouldn't think a six would go. Yeah. Well, something that's really important to me that that was kind of a revelation is that whenever I get ready to to do these international trips where I'm going to dangerous places, people tell me, oh, you're so brave. You're so brave. People told me that when I was going through cancer too. You're so brave. And I don't ever feel brave. I don't ever feel brave. And I was reading about it and then I was asking the question, what's the difference between being brave and and, and being courageous? So Mm. I actually looked it up. The grammar nerd in me looked this up. So... Being brave is when you don't feel afraid, and so you take big risks or do dangerous things. Being courageous is when you feel all the fear, but you choose to do it anyway because there's something more important at stake. Oh, this is amazing. I didn't know that. I'm not brave, but what takes me to these places is courage. It's choosing that something matters more than being safe or feeling secure. And these people okay. who are suffering matter more to me than my life. Okay, so now we can close the show. <laughs> because like that is one of the most amazing things. I'm going to include that in my workshops now. Because 
um, you know, a lot of people say, well, so we have these corresponding virtues. If you, if you have, uh, if your fear, if fear is your deadly sin or your passion, then the virtue that sixes for, would want to work toward, some would say it's courage. Others would say it's faith, right? Because faith allows for uncertainty. But, and, and I, you know, I'm a four, so I can do the whole both and thing. Um, and, uh, but I just love that delineation between bravery and courage because I think a lot of sixes think the answer is bravery and and actually there's never enough bravery to fill the bucket of you know the empty feeling of I you know this is a scary world and I'm never going to be safe and uh, I need support but man courage what an amazing definition you just gave of of courage I want to hear it again just say again what what courage is is what now being brave is not being afraid. So you take big risks or do dangerous things because you don't feel fear. Mm. Being courageous is feeling all the fear, but choosing to take a big risk or choosing to do something dangerous anyway because something bigger is at stake or because something matters more. All right. So sixes, I want you to write that on a three by five card or on a post-it. I want you to put it on the dashboard of your car, on the bathroom mirror, anywhere where you will have to see it. Uh, I mean, all the time, because that's the goal for you all, right? Is to have courage. It's not, it's not to be fearless, but, but to act, uh, in spite of fear, which is courage, not bravery. God bless you, Sarah, the Bards for saying that. Gosh, that's amazing. So I was going to ask you, what's the journey for you been like for overcoming? Like what has been your relationship with anxiety and fear over the course of your life a little bit and how has it changed and or even maybe how has the Enneagram helped you change your relationship to fear and anxiety? The Enneagram was the first thing I ever read that explained myself to me. It mm. was the weirdest experience because I'd taken all of these quote unquote personality tests and personality tests I feel like tell you like who you are, who you what you were born as, what your strengths and weaknesses are, but don't show any way forward. They don't really tell you what to do with that. It's just like, oh, here you go. But the Enneagram not only explained myself to me, but also created this vision of who I could be if I lived into Mm -hmm. all of my strengths. And then also explained myself to me because I understood why I was struggling with anxiety, why, you know, out of 200 people on the plane, I'm the one who knows all the stats about where the plane's more likely to crash within 90 minutes of taking off or landing and people in first class are more likely to die than people in the back of the plane. Like I'm, I'm the neurotic person, right? So I understood that. And so the Enneagram has been really, really helpful. And then I think in terms of overcoming fear and anxiety, it's, it's been an interesting journey. I don't, I do not appear anxious on the outside. When I take care of my patients, even if they're very horribly sick and and we have to intervene very quickly, the patients and their families always tell me, "Oh, you're so calm. You're so calm." My anxiety is very internal. I'm not mm-hmm. a I'm not a fidgety neurotic person. I'm a feel it all inside and be stoic. And so it's been very much an inner journey for me. And I think faith is important because. You know, I claim to be a person of faith. I claim to be a person who follows Jesus. And it comes down to, for me, do I believe it or not? If I'm losing sleep because I'm worried about money, if I'm losing sleep because 
I don't know about where I'm going to move next. Or if I'm losing sleep about my job, it's like, do I believe that God's taking care of me or no? Because these two things can't both be true, that I'll be unsupported, but I'm loved by a loving God that sees me and knows me and, and provides for all my needs. And so it's really choosing to, to have faith and to put all my weight on the God that I claim to love and that I stake my soul loves me. Mm. Wow. That's, that's wonderful. I, I, I don't know about the rest of the folks listening, but you know, I, uh, you know, the phrase that someone used to call was, uh, you know, your the functional atheism, right? You, you claim to believe something, uh, and yet you don't live your life in alignment with that belief. So he would say, well, you talk about that belief all the time, but you are a functional atheist, you know, like, because you're not actually living by it, you know? The most commonly repeated command is don't be afraid. 365 times. Like as if for every day of the year, God needed to tell you every morning, don't be afraid. And then the next day, don't be afraid. 365 times. And when I was in South Sudan, I read First John every morning because one of my favorite verses in all the Bible is, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. The one who fears is not made perfect in love because fear has to do with punishment. And I, um, and I feel like, you know, the opposite of love isn't hate, it's fear. And so that oh, yeah. that the opposite of fear is love. And learning to love and to be loved is how I overcome the fear or what God uses to overcome the fear in me. Mm. All right, what does that mean to you that, that, you know, because obviously lots of people would, you know, logically say, well, you know, the opposite of love is hate. Sometimes we've heard, you know, by some people that the opposite of love is indifference. But you just said the opposite of love is fear. And let's tease that out a second, because some people wouldn't necessarily make that connection. Yeah, well, I think, well, I think God makes that connection, right? Um, in, that, in that verse, in that whole passage. And then I think, too, that it has to do with, I think in that context, it has to do with divine love, right? There's mm-hmm. no fear in divine love. And so it could be different in the love that we have for other people. You know, I think indifference and and love is a really strong connection. But I think when it comes to how much we're loved by the divine, I think that love, love and fear are the opposites at stake there. Because, you know, do we believe that we're held by a loving God or a God that's, that's hellfire and damnation? Do we mm. believe that that our relationship is based on love or do we keep all the rules because we're afraid of what's going to happen when we don't? And I feel like, you know, we see this play out in religion that religion can become fear-based or love-based. And those are really the two, I don't know, the two sides of that spectrum. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you just said something I want to, I want to tag on. You said religion can be fear-based or love-based. Okay, so this is really big for sixes. Do you know if you're a phobic or a counterphobic six? I'm a phobic. Okay, that's what I thought you, you were. So for those who don't aren't familiar, familiar, you're new to the Enneagram, the six is the only type on the Enneagram that has two variants. One is the phobic six, uh, who uh, in their relationship with authority figures or structures would rather submit to them rather than rebel. Why? Well, because sixes are very fixated. Their attention is very riveted on who or what is in authority at any given time because they're thinking to themselves, wow, I need safety and security and guidance uh, and 
I've got my attention obviously focused on the atten- the person who's in charge because I feel like those things are tethered <laughs> to that that person or institution. So phobic sixes will will tend to submit to those uh, authorities uh, in interest of their own uh, safety, whereas a counterphobic six is, would rather rebel and bring down. It's literally a, I want to conquer my the source of my fear versus submit to it. Okay, so that was a long winded explanation, but probably helpful for people who are unfamiliar with sixes. So, what do you think about what I'm saying? Is that that's absolutely resonating? true? I think yes, and you know on the. The Enneagram triad, the center of the um, so five, six, and seven are in the head. It's mental. Um, and I think that following an authority or buying into a whole belief system gives sixes a break because somebody's thinking for you and somebody's oh. trying to untangle all of those knots. And so you don't have to. But the problem with that, the problem with that is what I think we just saw play out in the last election, that so many people bought into an authority figure that led them into the situation that we have right now, which which is basically the antithesis of the Bible. But they followed these leaders down this road where we end up with a leader that's nothing like Jesus at all in the name of Jesus, right? Like in the name of God, we do things that are the least like God. And I was, I was, thinking about why this happens. And then the medical person in me kicked in and I was like, because it's a reflex. The definition of a reflex is literally something that skips your brain, which is why Mm. when you're sitting on the exam table and the doctor taps your knee, you don't think, oh, I should make my foot fly up in the air. It just does. And so I think we've created in, in fundamentalism, we've created reflexes in people where, you know, we say abortion, reaction, homosexuality, reaction. Gay marriage reaction. We don't even think about it or, or, or talk about it or have helpful dialogue or think about the nuance of it. It's just this, this all or nothing reaction. But I think specifically for sixes, it, it gives them a break because they don't have to think because it does bypass your brain. So there's, there's some form of relief in that, but there's a lot of danger when you do assign your loyalty to someone that is not trustworthy. Yeah, especially, I, you know, I, well, what you just said was amazing because I am, um, because I'm not a six, right? And I'm doing these workshops. I can't help myself. I say to people, look, when, when somebody stands on a, uh, at a dais and says to a group of people, um, and we think there are more sixes in the population than any other number. That's all speculative, but, you know, whatever. Uh, and says, I am the only person who can keep you safe. Uh, all Mexicans are rapists and robbers, and they're coming across our borders in, like, droves. Not true, by the way. Um, and, uh, you know, we haven't had a major terrorist attack in our country since 2001. Apparently something—I'm not saying it's never going to happen. I'm just saying— People have done a fairly good job somewhere of keeping us safe, right? Uh, but he's he's really uh, provoking and leveraging the fear. And you 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 know a lot about the brain. I mean, you know, if you what is the part? Is that the amygdala where all this sort of reactivity is happening, right? Uh, in the limbic system, anyway, right? So. I mean, you know, it does, you know, say goodbye to the prefrontal cortex where people are making, you know, wise executive decisions and go right to the amygdala and get the cortisol running. And, you know, it's amazing how people will follow you if that's what you do. That's right. Fear is the basest motivation. But I think 
under the right you know, under some circumstances, it becomes the strongest motivation. And that, again, I think is an example of how, in that case, what's the opposite of fear? So if fear is the basest motivation, what is the highest motivation? It's love. It's love. So when, I mean, we, we should probably talk about this offline one day, but I would just, lo- I would like to see what it would look like if a campaign for, a president was based on love as the as the motivating force. I'm not. I just don't know uh, if if it would ever happen because it just isn't the most efficient way to motivate people. I know. Well, I don't think that love would ever win a political campaign because I think love is so transcendent over politics. But I do think that people who claim to love Jesus, who claim to love a God who is love, could vote for platforms that are a lot more loving to other people instead of being so selfish and self-centered and fearful. Mm-hmm. So you used a word that I love and uh, it's actually something that it's in a, it's part of it's part of this new book that I'm writing uh, which is actually to your topic that you were mentioning like okay so now you know your Enneagram number who cares it just makes you interesting at a cocktail party like what 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 do I do with it you know once I have it what was the next step right and um so I talk a lot about react, moving away from a life of reactivity to a life of responsiveness. Uh, and this idea that when people are living in reactivity, they make dumb decisions or they're just on automatic pilot of personality. They're just thinking, acting and feeling uh, like in a trance like state, you know, like whether it's the trance of anxiety or the trance of unworthiness or that whatever. So like for you, I think sixes, you, you just said it, I think are they have uh, this reactivity. It's grounded in fear. Um, How do you, um, or how have you lived a life where you're not reactive out of fear, but responsive out of love? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it comes back to that definition of courage. It's that you feel the fear and that may be the initial experience, but then you have to decide what matters more. So, you know, you think I'm afraid that I might not have enough money, but what matters more than me having enough money? What matters more than that? What matters more than me having, I mean, just fill in the blank. What matters more than what I'm afraid of right now? And I think that asking that question helps me overcome fear and does help me become more loving and helps me helps me have my eyes open to see other people and that to care about things that matter more than just me. And One of my favorite things that my driver actually in Togo, this kind of Togolese man, I I told him about the invisible girls. And why I called them the invisible girls is because on the date I met them on the train, they were really struggling and on the verge of freezing and starving to death in the U.S. And it seems like nobody saw them except for me. So I called them the invisible girls. And when I told the story of these girls to my driver in Togo, this this really wise Togolese man nodded and he said, he said, yeah, he said, love looks around. I said, it does, doesn't it? And I think when you overcome fear, it helps you see what matters more. It helps you see the collective instead of just the individual. And it really helps you become a person of love and compassion who does look around and does care about something more. Mm, I love that. Love looks around. 
That is a, a real word of incredible wisdom. Okay, tell me, how do you not go into the fear, anxiety space as a six to the place of reactivity, uh, but go to the place of like like sane responsiveness in the moment? How do you do that? So for me, I choose to go to a specific place. And for me, that it's that verse in First John, there is no fear in love. And that's where I just, if I feel that fear creeping up inside me, I feel my chest squeezing tight. I feel my heart going faster. I just jump. There is no fear in love. And mm. the more often I do that, the easier it is. And the more I find that that becomes the instinct is to go there as soon as I start to feel that fear. Mm, yeah. I am... Um, uh... I'm a huge poetry fan. I, I read a lot of poetry. One of my spiritual disciplines actually is to read a, a poem a day at least. Uh, and whether it's in a book or I go, I have a, uh, you know, like the Poetry Foundation has a daily poem they send out. Uh, the Writer's Almanac, which is my, the one I use, has one as well. But, you know, Rainer Maria Rilke has, uh, is maybe my, one of my favorite poets. And he has this beautiful poem where, where he says, let everything happen to you. This is the end of a poem of his in the Book of Hours. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. And that's, of course, uh, the words that, that Rilke attributes to, to God speaking to us. And I love that. Give me your hand. That's right. Give me your hand. Yeah. Don't be afraid. All right. Well, um, so do you struggle with self-doubt? I mean, here you are. You're a Yale and Columbia University educated uh, woman, uh, you know, very clearly, very bright, articulate, you know, traveled sophisticated but sixes typically deal with self-doubt and questioning everything and everybody self-doubt doesn't sound like something you would struggle with do you i i do i do i think i by by god's grace and with a lot of perseverance and work i get to these places where i am able to do to do brave or important courageous dangerous big things but it takes me a lot of internal work to get there. And that is work that nobody sees, but it is not automatic. It takes a lot of, of deep soul searching and thinking about all the angles and thinking about all of the alternative choices and choosing to land in, in one place or on one decision. So I, mm. I do struggle with self-doubt, but I, I don't let myself be paralyzed by it. So I feel like, you know, self-doubt is a place you can go, but you can't stay there. Mm. Are you learning to trust yourself? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if I trust in myself. Maybe that's, I don't know if I trust in myself and maybe that's, that's farther down the line on this journey mm -hmm. that I'm on. But I do trust in God. I can say that. I do trust in the God that loves me and cares for me. And that's what I trust in. Yeah, I, so you know, we have some folks on our podcast who who aren't would not self-identify as Christians or even necessarily people of faith. And I think 
but regardless of, of whether you are a person of faith or not, the one of the major struggles for sixes is beginning to trust their inner guidance system that they actually can make their own they can make good decisions without having to look to an authority figure or necessarily to a, a belief system or a political system or something that's going to answer all the questions that they are tired of hearing the fifty thousand voices in their head, you know, opining on what they should uh, be thinking or doing or feeling. Uh, and so this is part of the journey for sixes is learning to trust that you have the onboard equipment to make decisions. And by the way, if you make the wrong decision, in most instances, it will not be the end of the world. Mm-hmm. That's very right? true. It's very true. Yeah. Oh, man. I, uh, I, I love the when I get around a six who's in the middle of analysis paralysis, but they have a sense of humor about it. <laughs> And so they're like, you know, it's like George Costanza. It's like, you know, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? You know, and they're like just going off on, I got to make a decision and I don't know what to do. And will you tell me? And they're running from person to person asking, what do you think I should do? And it's, you know, it can get pretty humorous. I had this couple of years ago, I had this deep kind of crisis of meaning. And every single little thing I did, I had to know what's the meaning in that. What's the mm. long-term significance of that? So, so it was just, so it was so banal, but I would come home from work and then I, I'm just paralyzed by these choices. So I'm thinking I could read a book. I could watch a show. I could go for a walk. I could write. I could call a friend. I have all these choices and I don't know which one to make because I'm not sure which one is most meaningful. And so I was talking to my sister. So my sister's a two. Um, she's very, very mellow. She's great to talk to. She'll listen forever. And, and so I was just telling her what I was dealing with and how much anxiety I had when I got home from work. And I was like, I was like, Hannah, when you come home from work, how do you choose if you want to read a book or go for a walk or watch a show? And why do you make that choice? And so finally she got tired of trying to like gently, gently talk me through it. She's like, Sarah, they make medicines for people like you. Yeah, that's right. They're, they're called anxiolytics. <laughs> called Xanax and Ativan. Yeah. You know, well, you know, uh, Sometimes, you know, if, uh, there's a friend of mine used to say that she believes in, uh, what she say to me all the time? She goes, I believe in leading a good life through pharmaceuticals. <laughs> well, listen, you know, at the end of every show, I, um, I try to give people of the type that we're sort of discussing that day, people of that type, I try to give them some sort of, sort of strategies for self-development. So I'm going to throw a few out for sixes who might be listening. And then why don't you add or comment as I go along and, and, uh, you know, see what, see if these would be helpful to some people, you know, as we go, uh, if we go along, one would be, um, that perhaps at times when you're in that space of anxiety to imagine yourself as being bigger than whatever it is that you fear, or for that matter, remember so often, uh, in life, when a fear arises, we've already had the experience of overcoming or surviving that fear before. And sixes often forget, the, they have to be reminded a lot of past successes at making decisions, right? Um, I'd say a second one would be, uh, it really, I mean, this is a basic one, but I tell people this all the time, but particularly sixes and often sevens too, is exercise. <laughs> Like a great antidote to anxiety is you have to take care of yourself. Like, you know, I hate, this is so goofy to say it, but really people drink water, eat good food, sleep, 
and get exercise. And I think for sixes, this exercise thing for anxiety is super important. If you're a four, do it for depression, you know, for melancholy, whatever. I think that's important. Um, I think that uh, like a phrase I, I like to give sixes is doubt the doubt. Doubt the doubt. So uh, remembering that faith is not foolish. Uh, remembering that now I have a new one, which is that courage is cool. I'll make that up. And um, But doubt your doubts. Like when doubt arises, take a moment and say, okay, what story am I telling myself right now? And then the most important question, the next one is, is it true? Is it true? Because oftentimes we get arrested by ideas and thoughts that, that hijack us. Without ever asking, uh, you know, we go right to the limbic system. We skip, you know, over that prefrontal cortex. Go to the go to the limbic system and go. Without ever assuming, it's just assuming it's true because we're thinking it, and that's not the, that's not really very very happy. You know, very you know, it's not wise. Um, and then the last thing I'd say, and then I'm going to ask you, uh, Sarah, for some of your thoughts uh, either on these or adding some to the equation. Um, and, and that is uh, to balance the negative spin you tend to put on situations with some positives. You know, six is you, you tend at times to uh, focus on the negative. In fact, uh, if you if sevens deal with life and fear with optimism, uh, sixes, when you're not in a great space, you'll tend to deal with life with pessimism, your fear. So, again, you know, just balancing the negative spin that you tend to put on situations or the way that you are at times suspicious of other people's agendas to maybe perhaps uh, think the best of other people more often. All right, Sarah, you want to add any or comment on any of those? Mm, those are really good. Those are really good. I, I like having those very succinct practices. I would just say find a place to go that's greater than fear. So find a place that you just go to every time. Find, you know, like you said, the line from the poem, the the line from a secret text and just go there every time. Um, and then also just think about what matters more. So one of the things that I do is um, when I'm really spinning and I ask the question, tomorrow, will it matter how much I worried today? Next week, will it matter that I spent a lot of time worrying about this today? A year from now, will I care that I spent all afternoon worrying about this today? Most of the time, the answer is no, it's not worth it. It doesn't accomplish mm. anything. And so, you know, I think that's along the lines of doubt the doubt. Like, no, it's not worth it's not worth doubting that much. It's not worth spinning mm. that much. All right. Well, you just triggered something in my mind that uh, two things. Uh, so. One is, I hope these are helpful. One is on NPR uh, not long ago, I think it was on Invisibilia. I can't remember. It was a podcast from uh, NPR. This, uh, there was this guy who, who really struggled with anxiety around um, people rejecting him or uh, I think it was just rejection in general. And um, he had like a really almost a phobic sort of thing around it. So here's what he decided to do, that every day he would do something that would uh, actually uh, require him to experience rejection. So he would do things. So this is about fear. He's like so anxious about being rejected that he would do things like be standing in the CVS line. He would turn to the person next to him and say this, could you give me a ride home? 
<laughs> yeah. And or and then and of course the person's gonna say, No, that's very creepy, right? And he'd go, Okay, thank you very much. And then he would do something else, like very similarly, where people would turn him down and reject him. And he said, I just did it every single day. I forced myself to do something every day where someone would have to reject me or say no. And then one day I woke up and I no longer had anxiety around rejection. Mm. And you do that, Sarah. I mean, here you're going off to places like the Sudan, the Somalia. You're doing crazy things. And I wonder if maybe one exercise, a spiritual practice for sixes is whatever it is that you fear, just go out and do it about 20 times until maybe the fear softens and lets go. Absolutely. It's absolutely true. The The woman that actually runs the the mission and um, the nonprofit in South Sudan that I, that I went to work with, we had a conversation and she's a six too. She's a six as well. And and I was asking her about how do you overcome your anxiety? How do you overcome your fear? And how do you overcome it enough to spend six months a year in, in a war zone? And she said, you know, sometimes overcoming fear is not just about the big thing. It's just about the little practices. And so she says, every day I do something that's not routine that I feel a little bit uncomfortable about. So when she goes mm-hmm. to a cafe, she sits in a different or she sits by a door or by the window where she feels more vulnerable. Mm. She orders a different drink that she's never had before that she doesn't know if she's going to like it. Or she starts to read a chapter of a book that she doesn't that she doesn't know for sure that she likes the author or the genre. And every day she does these little things, and doing the little things helps her be able to do the big things. So I think that's really, really important that what you can do every day is sometimes matters more than what the big thing you're going to do next year mm. well that and that it's a natural place to close with uh, one more thing i wanted you to hear because you're a science you're a science person and uh but also it's just a good thing for sixes to or for other people to hear about sixes um because sometimes sixes will say to me oh i just you know i think people just get tired of my anxiety you know what i mean like they just get tired of hearing myself doubt they get tired of hearing me questioning everything and everyone they get tired you know you know and we, every type has does stuff repeatedly that people get tired of and and so maybe the sixes have a point well anyway i heard a, a thing the other day that really i just i wrote down right away there was a study done um and it was anthropologists i guess um who were studying chimpanzees and they were watching a family or a big group of chimpanzees, and they decided as a as a, an experiment to remove all the chimps that um, appeared to be the most anxious. And uh, they so they took out five or six chimps that were purely the most agitated or anxious, exhibited those uh, behaviors. What do you think? And they came back a year later. What do you think they found? That the community wasn't doing as well. They were all dead. <laughs> the rest the chimps were dead yeah what's that we serve a purpose a vital purpose yeah absolutely so whenever you get you know a little like uh impatient because uh the sixes are on the periphery looking on the horizon for what could go wrong just remember they were the ones who saw the lions <laughs> it's the truth we do serve a purpose. If that plane goes down, if that person codes in flight, they're in good hands. They're in good hands. Unless you want to go to the cadaver closet, people, you need to find the six on the plane. That's right. Sit next to the six. 
All right. Listen, I want to remind everybody, uh, Sarah's new book, Well, Healing Our Beautiful Broken World from a Hospital in West Africa. I want to remind you about her blog, which, I, Sarah, what's the address? www.sarahthebarge.com. Yeah. T-H- All right. So, folks, Sarah, here's how you spell it. S-A-R-A-H. T H E B as in boy, A R G as in good, E dot com. Sarah, thank you so much for being on Typology. You were awesome. And thanks for your courage, your courage uh, in doing all the cool things that you do. My pleasure. It was so fun to talk to you. Thanks for all of the, man, the road back to you and Typology have just been so, so, so life changing and helpful. So thank you. Wow. Well, hooray. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Ian. Bye. Hey, Typology Tribe, thank you so much uh, for being part of our family and for being uh, listeners of our show today. Uh, Someone asked me the other day, uh, how is it that we can become a sponsor on Typology? Like, uh, for example, like Talkspace is a sponsor uh, for the show. If you're a listener who is interested in becoming a sponsor on Typology, you can go ahead and contact my assistant, Wendy. W-E-N-D-Y, Wendy at IanCron.com, and she can tell you next steps for becoming a sponsor on Typology. Thanks to my friend and my engineer and my producer, Anthony Skinner. And until next time, I want you all to remember the words of the great Oscar Wilde. Be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. Adios.